Hello and welcome into Season 2, Episode 7 of Staying Sharp, our first episode of the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. Super excited for today's guest. It's John Cavalier, also known as Lynx Gems. You may be familiar with his work both on Instagram and Twitter. Incredible golf course photographer and an absolute staple in the golf social media world. Super excited to get to hear what he has to say about his journey through the game and how he's picked up photography in the process. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with John Cavalier. John Cavalier, ladies and gentlemen. John, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for having me. Anything for Temple, guys. Yeah. Uh, owls are everywhere, they, they say. That's right. So um, obviously... For those who, people who don't know who you are, I guess I'll just give you a short little intro and you can intro yourself too. But um, at Lynx Gems on Twitter and Instagram, golf course photographer, uh, big time avid golfer. And you kind of, you kind of grown a little, uh, a little following for yourself. Is there anything I missed there? No, nah, it's pretty accurate. I mean, golf obsessed is definitely, uh, definitely an accurate description of me. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's this, uh, this golf photography thing has grown into, uh, something, uh, that's, uh, it's kind of special, a lot of fun. Yeah. So I guess just jumping right into it, you know, how, like, were you, have you always been into golf or was it a later in life thing? You know, just tell me your story about just getting into the game of golf. No, you know, it's interesting growing up. I was always sort of the, the, the a standard sports guy, you know, played baseball, basketball, and football through high school. Uh, basketball and baseball in college. Uh, and then it just, it got to the point where, you know, you kind of age out of those sports when, uh, you know, you, you eventually can't keep up with the, uh, the 92 mile an hour fastball uh, or the guys in the basketball court are two feet bigger and twice as fast as you are. Uh, so it got to the point where I, I needed a new sport. Um, tried softball for a little while. I wasn't really competitive enough. Uh, and then uh, I first got into golf. I was almost out of college at the time. I was about, I guess, 22. Uh, and I'd never, never liked golf at all. My father played a little bit when I was growing up, but I, I never really got into it. It always looked boring to me. It always looked too slow. Frankly, it always looked too easy, uh, which I found out really quickly was not the case. But, uh, you know, I got invited to play in a, in a scramble tournament uh, with my dad and a couple of his buddies for work. They needed a fill-in for a fourth. It was out at Hartfeld National uh, near Avondale. Uh, so I, I said, sure, why not? How hard can this be? I'll, I'll give it a shot. Went out and I still remember very clearly we ended up shooting horribly, playing terribly. Uh, and I was hooked immediately from the very first round. Uh, and from that point on, I've just, it's really been my main focus as far as sports goes. And, uh, I mean, I, I literally, it was like heroin for me. One, one hit and I was completely addicted. Yeah, I feel that I, I mean, for me, it was almost the same thing. It was, you know, at the end of middle school, it was like, I really want to play a sport in high school. And it, I'm not making the, probably not going to make the baseball team. Definitely not going to make the basketball team. Might as well uh, try this golf thing out. Now, when you were coming up in golf, was it, were you playing on, on munis? Like, I, I know you're a Philly guy, oh, yeah. but, you know, kind of how was that part of, you know, growing into it? How are you really getting into it? Yeah, so very much so. Um, and I've always had a soft spot for, for muni golf and also for little mom and pop public courses. And so this is going back now. I can't believe it's been, I guess we're getting close to 20 years, but uh, I learned the game at a little course called Pilgrim's Oak way out uh, in, uh, in Amish country in Peach Bottom, Pennsylvania. 
about halfway to Harrisburg from Philadelphia. And um, it was owned by this really nice family. And uh, I developed a relationship with them, actually built their first website. Uh, and in exchange for that, they gave me a, uh, a membership there. Uh, and so I was driving out there playing at this course three days a week, you know, when I was in law school. Um, and uh, I probably clocked 500 rounds there over, over the course of three years or so. Uh, put a lot of miles on my car driving out there, but I love the golf course. And I loved, I love the whole setup. It's in, on this beautiful hilly piece of land out in farm country. Uh, and it's a fantastic golf course. So it was, that's where I played most of my golf, but certainly, you know, Cobbs Creek uh, was, it was a big stop, you know, even, even going to St. Joe's my last year there, it was, you know, there were days where it was just too nice to keep going all the way to class. So I'd detour into the parking lot and play a loop there. Um, Lulu, I've always been a big fan of Jeffersonville, you know, Philly, if you scratch the surface a little bit, Philly's really got a great assortment of these classic muni and public courses. So there's definitely no shortage on that front. Yeah, that's something I want to touch on a little later, you know, just kind of accessibility and how golf has grown in the past year. But before we get into that, I kind of want to go to the photography part. So you started a, a hilly course, obviously that's going to make for some pretty, scenic stuff and even if you weren't into photography we've all been on the golf course on days where you just come up on a tee box and you're just stunned at how beautiful the view is or how beautiful that hole is and some of them just come out really great on in a photo so talk to me about you know when the first time you really like brought a camera onto a golf course and how that's grown into what the monstrosity it is now so it's amazing how close you, you got there. So, and I, I should say, I've never, I've never really, I mean, I've always been into gadgets as a golf guy. I mean, most golfers like gadgets and tech stuff and uh, that's always been the case for me, but I've never really, I never really did a lot of photography for any reason really coming up, but um, as it happened, you know, I like, I like gadgets. So I ended up buying this little camera that I thought would be fun to play around with. And as it happens, I had around, I was playing at, Somerset Hills in New Jersey, which if you've ever been there is an absolutely stunning A.W. Tillinghast classic course. And I'd never been there. It was my first time. And I had the camera with me and we pull in. It's a fall day and it just rained all morning. There were, you know, the, the sun came out. There were rainbows everywhere. The sky was beautiful. And I figured to myself, if I'm ever going to try shooting photos on a golf course, now's the day. It's perfect. So I took the camera out with me and um, it was exactly what you're saying, you know, just standing there and every which way you looked, it was this incredible view with just unbelievable golf holes and beautiful trees and sky and everything. I mean, it had everything you'd ever want. So I took some photos while I was out there and, and I found that I really enjoyed the photography part of it, you know, almost as much as the actual golf. So, you know, I shared them on some, I mean, this is back before I was doing Twitter or Instagram, shared them on some golf boards, sent them to my friends, sent them to the club, which really liked them. Um, and it sort of kicked off the whole thing. And from there I started mixing in more photography when I would go play golf. It also helps too, quite honestly, that at this point in time, it was really when I was starting to play what I'll call sort of the higher echelon golf courses. And these are places where, you know, for any of us, it's like you get an invite to a certain spot and you think this may be the one time I ever get to see this place. So certainly at that time, it was like, I would really love to have some photos of this to, to kind of be able to remember it by, you know, five years, 10 years down the road, go back through the photos and be able to remember this wonderful round I had at some famous course somewhere. So that kind of played into it too. And uh, I, 
probably was doing that for a year or two before somebody asked me, you know, hey, why, why aren't you on social media? And I was, you know, I've never really been that into it. And I said, why, why do I want to be on social media? To share these photos. People would really like to see them. So I said, all right, what the hell? I'll give it a try. I mean, never really thinking anything would come of it uh, and not really knowing how to do it either, quite honestly. Um, but uh, I gave it a shot first with Twitter, a couple months later with Instagram. And, you know, rather flatteringly, people seem to really like it. And that's obviously motivation to do it too. I mean, I'd still be taking the pictures even if I was only doing it for myself because I enjoy it. But when people like to see what you're doing, it certainly encourages you to try and do it more and, and do it better. So that's sort of where it came from. And like you said, from there, it's just grown wildly ever since. I mean, certainly beyond anything I ever expected or, or planned for or anything like that. That always happens. There's always someone that has some crazy hobby that they start doing and in the nature of social media, it just blows up and no one ever really thinks it's going to happen until it does. And I, I think the, the coolest part about that is, you know, you say you're going out to do your rounds and you were just doing it for the photography aspect. I've always been motivated by like, I want people to know that I live on the golf course. So every time right. I'm on a hole, I'm going to pull out my phone and take a picture and post it on my Instagram story. Sure. So people know I'm out here working on my game, even though I still probably you know, lose to them on a regular day. But I want to, I want to go into that, you know, bigger following and how you've grown, because I think what's so remarkable is I, right before you hopped on, I read the short piece that PGA.com did on you about kind of inspiring people during the pandemic at the very beginning of the pandemic, yeah. which is crazy to think about right now. I know. Um, but you know, how your work was inspiring people and giving them a getaway. But how crazy has that been? Not only your growth on social, but to think that your work has inspired people to get into the game of golf and maybe even fiddling around with golf course photography. You know, so that's something that I was unprepared for, honestly. I mean, I, at the beginning, it was always just sort of like, like you said, you know, I, I, I was, I wanted to share with people that I was very much into golf, but also you know, part of it is I get to play some places that are pretty exclusive. And I, I think it's, it's a good thing to show people out there, you know, there are, these things are out there waiting for you. You know, they're, they're worth, if you ever get the invite or if you're ever in the area and you know a friend who can get you on, like, this is a place you might want to play. Uh, and also, you know, for people who have a little bit of an architectural interest in how these golf courses are built, and what makes them great. I try to do a little bit of that on my feed too. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly a, a part of, I think the little, the little niche that, that I carved out for myself. Um, but as far as the, the, the following goes, I mean, it, it was, you know, it, it's been, it's certainly not anything that I ever expected. I mean, I, I remember when I started my account, one of my friends asked me, what, what are you trying to do with this? And I said, you know, if I ever, if I could ever get a thousand followers, that would be pretty neat. Um, and it's obviously grown well beyond that. And, and that's really flattering. But again, it, the, the better part I think of it is, is that, you know, my followers, they're, they're at least for the most part, they're, they seem to be really good people who are really into golf. And so I've made a lot of friends through it. I've made a lot of relationships through it. Uh, and to your point, the, the most gratifying thing that I ever get um, through that is um, is when somebody reaches out to me and says either, hey, you know, I've taken up golf or photography because of you, um, or they say, um, you know, you've really inspired me to try to get more into the architectural side of it, or, or you know, my interest in a certain course has really taken off because 
uh, I saw some pictures and we talked about it or, or even something like, hey, you know, I've been playing at this course for the last 15 years of my life and I never realized that it had some cool history that I've now been looking into more. So it goes in a lot of different directions, but the interactivity of it is really what, what makes me very happy about it. I mean, I can't, I can only imagine how gratifying that is to get someone reaching out. Like, you know, I started taking this and maybe they shoot you over a photo and you're like, well, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. yeah, you're playing a beautiful piece of land. You might as well take the little piece of technology we keep in our pockets out and definitely and make definitely. something. Get a, get a lot of questions. You know, I, I want to get more into taking photos. What camera should I buy? Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I've been shooting photos with my iPhone, but I'm looking to upgrade, which direction should I go and things like that. It's all, it's all a lot of fun. It's just, it's a great way to just be able to talk about this stuff. And, you know, you're like me, so you get it. Anytime you can talk about golf in any yep. way, it's going to be, you know, a good time. And social so, media really has made it clear that the crazy golfers among us, we tend to find each other just like you and I did. Yeah, no, you're not kidding. And I, I mean, this podcast, so you're actually one of the most, the most unique guests I we've had thus far. My co-host couldn't join us tonight, but um, a lot of the people we've had have been like full-time creatives or administrators or what have you in the sports world. But from you as a hobbyist, I would love to know a, you know, what are you shooting on? What are you using? You're obviously big in the aerial space as well. And B, how are you bringing, and this is a personal question. How are you bringing, this stuff on the golf course are you throwing it in your golf bag are you taking a golf cart like because these are these are things that uh, you know i've had to consider before so great question we'll do we'll do the gear first um so i have my current primary rig as they say uh, in the you know the real photographers say uh is a sony a7r4 mirrorless interchangeable lens camera it's big and it's it's heavy. Yeah. I have the um, a seven three myself. So it's a yeah, so, same right. fourth factor. It's, it's a, it's a big honker. Um, but I have a, a bag that has a, an attachment to it that lets me holster the camera on the side. So I, I walk and carry most of the time. So when I throw it on my shoulder, the camera's right there uh, and I can bring it around pretty easely. I also shoot with a little Sony RX 100. That's nice when I don't want to bring the big rig fits in my pocket. Uh, which is which is nice if I'm not really you know if I'm not looking to to hump the big camera out with me uh, for a round uh, I take that and then on the aerial side uh, I do most of my work with a, um, a DJI Mavic 2.0 Pro which I really like because it's incredibly portable um, and then I also have an Inspire that uh, I'm looking to to put a new camera on but it, that thing is big I mean it comes you know you haul it around and it's like a gigantic suitcase that you you got to carry it around in. Um, and that's not super convenient for what I do, which to address the second part of your question, um, how I'm bringing it on the course depends on what I'm doing there, uh, and who I'm there with and what I'm trying to get done. So if, if I'm out on a course and it's just a random invite going to play golf with my buddies somewhere special, um, I usually bring the big camera. Uh, like I said, it clips to my bag, so it's pretty unobtrusive, um, you know, obviously I make sure that the, the course or the club is okay with me being out there shooting photos while I play. And 90% of the time they just say, you know, as long as you're not slowing anybody down, do whatever you want. Uh, and of course that's gotten easier recently as I guess I've become more popular for lack of a better word. Um, the, uh, the aerial stuff I don't do while I play, I usually do it either before or after. 
Uh, and then, of course, you know, it's a different ballgame if a club has asked me to come to shoot photos or has hired me to come and shoot photos. Then it's really just sort of a free for all. And I'm out there with all of my gear and a backpack and, you know, probably a golf cart with the drones and, and everything like that. Um, but that's obviously different than what I'm usually doing. I mean, I take probably 95 percent of the photos just during the course of a round while I'm playing or if it's a particularly beautiful day, I might go back out on the course afterwards. But you know, in large part, the, the photography is a byproduct of the golf. Well, first off, I definitely need the information on that camera holster that you can put on your golf bag because I need that sure. in my life. I'll um, send you a picture of it. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. And possibly somewhere I could go uh, uh, pick it up myself. And, sure. you know, I think one of the, the biggest things, obviously, I listened to the foreplay episode, you know, obviously listening to them, one of their biggest questions for you is like, how the hell are you finding these photos on the golf course? Because the last few times I've been around, you know, I'll just use Lulu, for example, because that's my home course. Like every time I've been around, I'm like, oh, is this mound going to be good for me to stand on to take a photo? I was like, well, no, there's a dead tree over there. Like, is this going to be good? No, the road's right there. Like, how are you over the course of your round, if you're a good player, you're not really in too many crazy spots on the golf course. Like, how are you finding these spots to ultimately take these pictures? So first off, that's actually a great question. And one that I actually don't get very often, but the first, the first thing I would say to you is I think to really take good pictures of a golf course, you got to be a golfer, you know, otherwise you're just shooting landscapes, you know, like you need to, you need to have a fundamental understanding, I think, of the game of golf so that you're actually taking photos that are compelling to other golfers. Otherwise, like I said, you're, you're not really, you're just really capturing pretty nature as opposed to the way a hole sets up or the architecture of it and so forth. The other answer to your question, I think it's really just, just practice. You know, the more you shoot, the more you start to understand what looks nice in a golf photo and you know the angles that are going to be most compelling and most importantly as i as i try to tell people who ask similar questions is you know it's really all photography is, is you're just capturing the way that light hits the ground so the more you shoot the more you learn that certain times of day are going to be more effective at certain courses you learn you know i play a lot of my golf at sleepy hollow up in new york and you learn over time in hundreds of rounds that you know, late in the afternoon, the sun comes from over in this direction. So these are good holes to shoot at that time because the light will be right. And then in the morning, it's these holes that you want to get. And you'll, you'll learn that with the practice where you're going to get the most compelling shots. But I will tell you, quite frankly, you know, on a normal day, if I'm really going out there and hardcore shooting, I might take a thousand photos. 900 of them are going to be crap and they go right in the dumpster. You know, I mean, it's really a trial and error process. I think a lot of people get hung up on this idea that like you got to capture a perfect photo in order for it to be good. I'd rather shoot 10 and and hope that I pull some some good ones out of them. You know, it's it's like this. I, if I take a thousand photos, I'll keep a hundred of them. Ten of them will be really good. And if it's been a good day, one of them will be great. And that's what I try to 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 remember as I'm out there trying new things and shooting from different spots, but it's very much trial and error process. So are there days when you go out as a, like a hardcore golfer that you're a upset that the conditions aren't great for photography and B days where you, for some reason, either are too locked in or don't have your camera on you that you just instantly regret it as soon as you walk off the course. Definitely. Um, and I will tell you, there is, it, it crushes me when I'm at a place where 
I know I really want to shoot and the weather and conditions are bad. I had a round like that at Cypress Point a couple of years back where it was cloudy. Now, luckily I'd already been and I, and I had the photos from a perfect day, but I mean, Cypress Point, you always wanted to shoot photos there. Um, and, but it was cloudy and overcast and dreary and just crappy. And it was like, I mean, it only lasts for a minute or two because you're still playing on an unbelievable golf course. But yeah, I mean, there's a feeling you get when you're like, damn, I, I really wish that the light was better today. Um, it's pretty rare anymore. I mean, if I'm playing in a serious match or you know, a, a tournament or competition, then I generally leave the photo gear behind. Um, but even when I'm playing in a, in a half serious match or if I'm trying to shoot a number, I'm so used to shooting the photos while I'm out on the golf course now that it really doesn't affect me. And sometimes if I don't have at least a camera on me, uh, it almost feels weird and throws me off a little bit, you know, because then I'm constantly seeing stuff. Wow. That would make a great photo. Wow. That'd make a great photo. I don't have anything to, to capture it with. So it's, it's become such a habit anymore that it's just normal. Do you find that taking the photos kind of keeps you locked in on the golf yes, course? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, it's all part of your routine. You know, everybody always talks about when well, you got to have your pre-shot routine and, and you're walking to your ball and you're thinking about stuff. That's just all part of my mentality on the golf course anymore. And that comes with shooting literally millions of photos. You know, I mean, I, it, it's just, it becomes ingrained in a way that any habit that you do all the time does. Yeah, for sure. So I got to ask about the calendar. Obviously, that's one of the biggest sure. things you do. Um, you've talked about it before, I, I think numerous places, but how do you, like, just how do you do it? How do you get, how do you get 13 photos? It is incredibly difficult. The hardest thing I do all year is trying to pick 13 photos to go into the calendar. Um, some of it takes care of itself. You know, I like to do the four courses that the majors are at in a given year. If I have them, I usually do. So that's four right there. On top of that, I like to try and do half and half ground versus aerial. And I like to do half and half public versus private. So it's kind of like a big puzzle where you're pulling from one and taking from another. And then you say, oh, I really want to use this, this ground photo of a great public course. But then the next month is a ground photo. So I got to look for an aerial to switch it out with. And it, it takes me a month of, of being incredibly anal and OCD over how to do it and what goes where. Um, but it, I mean, it's all really worth it in the end because people really are great about supporting this calendar and it raises some good money every year for charities, charities that are very important to me, uh, animal welfare and dog rescue charities. So, you know, these people who are kind enough to support this project, I want to, I really want to make sure that they get the best thing I could possibly put out and the best photos that I could possibly find. So it's important to me to get it right. Are you restricted to only using photos from that year or can it be? I try to. Can it be from any time? Yes. So I try to, the, the time when I will violate that rule is if I'm doing one of the courses for the majors that I didn't take in that year. So like, for example, this year's calendar has a picture of Kiowa Island in it for the PGA. And I wasn't at PG or uh, Kiowa Island until after the calendar had already gone to print this year. So I had to use a photo from a couple of years ago. I'll violate the rule there. But I try to never, I never use the same photo in a calendar twice. So like they're always new to the calendar. Um, but I will, I do try to keep it from courses and photos that I did in the prior year. So that they're fresh. Do you have, so I mean, with all those great photos, so you take, let's say you take a thousand every round, 900 of them are garbage, hundred of them are fine. 10 of them are good. One of them is great. That adds up with the amount of golf you play, obviously. Do you have any long-term like plan with all these amazing photos, like the one of ones? 
so yeah, one day I would like to do a book. Um, and so on that note, I just, I actually just published my first book uh, from Sleepy Hollow. It's the story of the, uh, the Gil Hance restoration at the club. Um, and it was an amazing process. We had a great time doing it. It came out really well. It just went to press. Um, but I would love to take that same model and do something like that for clubs or courses across the board where it's sort of like, I mean, you see a lot of these books out there, you know, Darius Oliver has a good one. Tom Doak always publishes the confidential guides, but I, I would love to one day put out sort of like a, just a Lynx Gems book on a hundred or 150 of my favorite courses in the country, real heavy on the photos, something that looks pretty, they can sit on a coffee table that people can flip open, look at in their spare time, something like that. I mean, that's, that's kind of the loose plan for the future. Yeah, you still got a lot of golf ahead of you before you can. Uh, exactly. And I got to tell you, every every time I think about doing the book, I always say to myself, well, I don't really want to do it until I get to this place, this place and this place. So I'll do that this year and then I'll see. The problem is that list of places I still want to get to instead of getting shorter, it somehow gets longer. So, you know, it's kind of never ending. Yeah, there are so many great golf courses. I mean, you I'm I'm obviously more local. I, I don't really go, go too far out of the tri-state to play. But the amount of golf courses that you could be like a tour professional and still not know of these absolute gems in certain totally. corners of this country that are just unbelievable tracks. You're right. And I got to tell you, the best part about traveling around to see these golf courses and to play them, you would think it's getting on like the world famous courses, you know, going up to New York and playing Shinnecock or going to Florida and playing Seminole. And don't get me wrong. That is very great to be able to do. But the best part about that is the other course that you find and play while you're there that you maybe never even heard of or never thought about. And it's incredible. You know, you just, they're not on any list. They're not in any books. Nobody ever talks about them and they're amazing. And you're to your point, you're right. I mean, there are thousands of courses like that across the country that you would never know of unless you stumbled onto them or you read about it somewhere in a book. So I'm hoping that what I'm doing is at least encouraging some people in those areas to go check these places out. So are, when you, when you're traveling from golf course to golf course, are you there, you know, for business, are you there visiting people? Or are you traveling to go to these golf courses? Yes. To all three of those. So when I travel for work, if I'm, you know, going somewhere on a three day business trip, or if I have a little trial or a hearing somewhere, I'll try to take that three day business trip and turn it into a, a five day trip with golf on both ends. Those are my favorites. Um, certainly whenever I travel, my wife and I do like to travel a lot. So does our dog. She comes with us. And when we travel for vacations or what have you, she's a triathlete and a marathoner. So she'll schedule a race somewhere and I'll play all the golf in the area when we go. And then of course, I mean, I am taking a fair amount of just golf trips throughout the course of the year. Not so much in 2020, unfortunately. Um, but once we get out of this pandemic thing, I'll be, I'll be hitting it hard again. No, for sure. Um, Obviously, you talked about your dog, Gracie, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gracie. So with are, are there courses that I mean, obviously, I know there are like some golf courses where it's like the lore that the the super comes out with their pup every morning and you that. But do you have to get like special permission to bring the dog out or are you kind of hey, Lynx Gems is here? His, dog, <laughs> his dog's part of the package. So first of all, I'm, I'm a member at Stonewall, uh, Alden Elverson, and it's a dog friendly club. It's the main reason why I joined there uh, is because I could bring Gracie out with me to play. Um, and it's great. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to, to Scotland or played golf outside of London, but like bringing dogs is like super common over there. Uh, 
Um, it is very much, unfortunately, not super common here. So it's usually when she comes with me, it's usually either to Stonewall or to a place where either the club or a member has invited me and specifically invited Gracie along too. Like, I don't, I mean, I'm not one of these people who, you know, will call up a place and say like, hey, I'm coming down and uh, I'd love to bring my dog. Is that cool? Like, I don't want to put him in a spot like that. So like, you know, Galloway National is another one. They're a dog friendly club down in New Jersey. And so I got a buddy there and he invites me and Gracie out all the time. Uh, and there's a few others sprinkled around that like specifically and expressly allow dogs. But I just, it's just not in my nature to, to show up with Gracie and be like, hey, you know, is it cool if we go out? Uh, just because I don't want to put him in the position of having to say yes. So, but she does get around pretty good. I mean, if you know where to look and you're, you know, you look hard enough, you can find some places that'll allow dogs. Personally, I wish it was more widespread, uh, especially on the private side. You know, I do get it why public courses can't just have a free for all with dogs running around, just like with dog parks in the city. You always have some of those people who, you know, there's no bad dogs. There's only bad dog owners. Like you're going to have that in certain places, but uh, it would be nice if more clubs, at least in my opinion, allowed. And some people have strong opinions the other way, but I mean, uh, you know, Gracie is, uh, you know, she's my baby. You know, one of the things I really want to get into is I know you're a student of the game, as they would say, and really big on the architecture side. And I think what's so great, um, and I don't know why or how it's this way, but the Philly area seems to have such a good sprinkling of all the great golf course architects, yes. it seems like. So I, I don't really know what like what are your favorite courses? What are your favorite architects? What are your favorite features? Just kind of give me like you as an architecture guru, just your take on the diversity we have in the area. Sure. So I will say that you're right. First of all, I mean, Philadelphia is arguably the best city in the United States for golf nerds like me, golf course architecture. Um, I mean, that's a debate that we could use an hour on, so we won't get into the other possibilities, but it's up there. Um, and you're right, we, we sort of run the board. The one thing we don't have in Philadelphia, which for me is more the pity, is a C.B. McDonald course. And he's my, my favorite architect. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a member at Sleepy Hollow, which is a C.B. McDonald original. National Golf Links on Long Island is my favorite course. Uh, I'm just a huge C.B. McDonald, Seth Rayner nerd. Um, we don't have a McKenzie course either. We used to. J.C. Melrose had some McKenzie involvement way back in the day, uh, but it's just been lost over time as so many courses, you know, it just happens. Um, but we have some dynamite William Flynn courses here. Marion is a William Flynn redesign from the Hugh Douglas or the Hugh Wilson original. Um, we have uh, some great Donald Ross courses. Um, a manufacturer is another great William Flynn course right across the street from Lulu, which is a great Ross course. Um, and then we have some of the best modern guys uh, out here too. I mean, we have, we have Gil Hans who did Applebrook, which is a phenomenal course. Uh, my place, Stonewall, which is a 36 Tom Dokholes. Um, Hidden Creek down in the Jersey Shore is a Corin Crenshaw original. You know, we really do have a great spread of all of the different architectural styles here. Um, which not many places can lay claim to. I mean, New York could, California to a smaller, we, we even have a George Thomas course, White Marsh Valley is, George Thomas is a first 18 hole original. So you get some stuff here that you really can't find anywhere else. And as a super golf architecture nerd like me, that's very appealing to be able to sample all of those different architects just by you know going on a 15 minute drive. 
Yeah, it, it's crazy you say that because my – I mean, obviously, I'm relatively new to the game. I've been at probably five, six years now. But my first exposure was, like, you know, I started looping at Philly Cricket in – That's seven, a great one. Seventh grade, I think. And it was, like, Tillinghast, Tillinghast, Tillinghast. Yeah, I, was like, I forgot oh, Tillinghast. He's a Philly native. Yeah, sprinkle his ashes right in the creek. Exactly. Um, but exactly. I, I, you know, when I when I'm there, I'm like, it's a Tillinghast course. It's so cool. It's a Tillinghast course. Not realizing the scope of what we have, and like, yeah, AW Tillinghast is cool, but Donald Ross is a legend too. Like, you know, right. all these guys are just it, 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 we're spoiled. We are spoiled, and and we are also spoiled in that we have a lot of examples of their early work here that survived. Yeah. You know, cricket's a great example. Keith Foster came in there and did a, a restoration that is just off the charts good. And a lot of the clubs in this area have, they sort of knew what they had and either they chose to keep it and preserve it or over the years, they just didn't have enough money to screw it up. So what we're now left with in this sort of second golden age, as certain people call it, is, you know, a really terrific assortment of really well-preserved classic golf courses. Uh, and like you said, I mean, if you're really sort of a student of the game, you can get a really great education by staying within 30 minutes of downtown Philadelphia. And, and again, there are very few places that can say that. Now, unfortunately, a decent chunk of it's private, which is another issue probably for another day. But even on the public side, you can get some really great courses out here. Yeah, that kind of segues into the, the final thing. Uh, I really wanted to touch on before I get some rapid fire questions for you, Sure. but really like the public versus private conversation is like raging on it. A lot of it, I think personally stems from like when you're looking at youth sports in Europe yeah. and America and like the Academy structure in Europe and the pay to play structure here, it almost translates to golf where you can't really play a good, decent golf course. It feels like in Philadelphia, unless you know yes. someone that's a member or you are a member. Yeah. And yes. with the pandemic getting so many people into golf, you know, you've, you've said that golf is, has a history of being inaccessible to most. Yes. Um, so how do you think that, you know, affected people, but also, you know, really just touched the growth of the game in the past year? So I have really conflicting feelings on this. And I'll start by saying that if you travel to other countries, you know, I did, I've been to, to London and Australia in the past two years. And you know, if you go there, you know, I as a visitor can show up at Royal Melbourne and pay a greens fee and play. It's one of the best clubs in the world. It's private, it has a membership, but you, they have certain days and certain times where you as a visitor can just book a time. It's expensive, but you can do it. In the U.S., it's almost unheard of for a club to follow that model. It's a little bit more prevalent these days, but it's very, very rare. Now, the theory that certain people have is that that won't work here because we have so many clubs and so many private courses that allowing that kind of paid guest day would disincentive the membership to support the club. Uh, so it's just not workable. I don't know how I feel about all that. I just, I wish that there was a way that in this country, golfers who really wanted to could get to experience the truly great. I mean, there is a lot of great public private golf in Philadelphia and, and throughout the country. And it is, I mean, it's a shame when somebody who truly loves the game can't get access to that. Now, on the other hand, I'm of the belief that there are only really say 
one or two dozen truly private golf courses in the country. And by what that, what I mean by that is if you really want to play somewhere and you have some resources and some time and the patience to dedicate to it, I mean, it might take years, but with the exception of a very, very small group of clubs, you can do it either through a private auction or a charity auction, or, you know, one of these, these golf networking places or a place like outpost club or a Lego club where members of private clubs get together and host each other and things like that. So it is doable, but it's really difficult. And, and, you know, I mean, now as we sit here today, I'm fortunate enough to be a member of a couple clubs and it gets a lot easier when you're, you're a member of a club or you, you know, you have friends who are members of private clubs. Um, but for a long time, I was the same way. You know, I mean, I've lived in Philadelphia my entire life and I didn't play Marion until 2013 for the first time. You know I mean? And I've driven by it a million times, looking at it drooling out the window. That's really frustrating for a guy who loves golf to know that there's this amazing course there. And I, you know, I can't, I can't get through the front gate. Uh, so I wish that was, that was less of the case in this country, but I just, I mean, smarter people than me are going to have to figure out the solution to it because, you know, I wish there was some kind of middle ground, but I just, for the life of me, I can't figure what it is. Um, and then lastly, just on, you know, in fairness to the private clubs, were it not for the private golf model in this country, we would have lost countless great courses that are now treasures because they would have failed as either public private hybrids or public courses. So again, it's not a very satisfying answer, but I'm extremely conflicted on that, on that model. Uh, and that's easy for me to say as somebody who, you know, can, can get on a lot of places and has been to a lot of places, but I very much do sympathize with the, the guy who loves golf and wants nothing more than to go play this great course that he's looked at and just, you know, is dying to play there and can't do it. I mean, that's torture and it stinks. And it's, you know, it's exclusive, which I don't like. I mean, I'm, I'm all about golf being inclusive. I just don't know what the solution to it is. I do understand where the private model stays prevalent. I mean, when Lulu a couple of years ago, when they had to open up the public to kind of stay afloat, right. like you understand you're going to get the hacks from Twining Valley. May she rest in peace. The worst golf course ever. <laughs> Grace the earth. Um, but you know, when people were coming over to Lulu, like, oh, it's a $30 range fee. I'll do it. Like the place gets destroyed because you really can't right. vet out like this person's a hack or this person's like kind of decent at golf. They just have nowhere to play. Right. And to your point, it's like, if, if you're a member at Lulu and you're paying, I have no idea what Lulu costs, but let's just say the dues at Lulu are 3000 bucks a year. Not if a you're a member at Lulu. Right. So if you're a member at Lulu, like, why are you paying $3,000 a year if you could play 10 times at 60 bucks a pop? You know what I mean? Like it, the economics of it are difficult to sustain both things, you know, to, to have a membership and to also have some public access to it because you're going to lose members when you have that. And the members are the ones ultimately supporting the club. It works in other areas because golf is much, much cheaper there overall than it is here. I mean, you could go to England and be a member of you know, a top 100 course in the world for 1500 bucks a year in some instances. I mean, the prices are amazing. So in that instance, it's like, it makes sense to be a member, but here the membership dues are so high that if you can get on and play via some public access route, a lot of the membership is going to migrate over toward that kind of a, a, a pay to play scenario. And it's going to undercut the financials of 
you know, of the golf club staying afloat. Now, you know, I say all this, I've never been, a, I've never worked at a golf club, so I may just be completely talking out of my ass here, but that's the perception that I have of how the golf courses operate in that mold. No, it definitely makes sense. And I think the, the last point I want to make on this is it, it sucks because, you know, when you have a public golf course, you see something that can get run down. Like you said, if it's doesn't have, you know, substantial backing, you know, someone, somewhere like Cobbs Creek, was able to play it when it was in like decent shape. Apparently now it's right. a dog track, but now they're going to put millions of dollars into it, into restoring it into what it, what it could be. But in the area, if you want a good public golf experience, you got to go to Jeffersonville and right. you have one golf course. It's yep. beautifully maintained, but yep. it, unless you're on probably a week in advance and unless you get, you know, some yep. golf Pat. now deal, you're not getting on because it's the Correct. best public option you have. And I think that's, that's really right. unfortunate for the, you know, regular it person. It very much is, especially as, as you said earlier about the pandemic and golf becoming so popular this year, you know, it's like, I, I'd like to get around and play new places. So it's like in looking at that and looking at options, I mean, it was hard to get on to a, a decent public golf course anywhere this year. And you know, that, that lack of capacity is, is kind of sad. And I will tell you though, even on the private side, I mean, Every club that that I play at and every club I know of rounds this year were through the roof. So it's like the the demand is higher than it's been in in forever. Um, And I'm hoping that leads to like what's going on at Cobbs Creek. I mean, that's a project that I am extraordinarily excited about. I know the people involved in it. They are great golf people who truly love golf. They have the money. I mean, if that comes through and Philly finally has like a legitimate top shelf amazing public course with some history behind it that's just going to be something I, I can't wait to see yeah we were able to play there my senior year I played high school golf my senior year we, we were able to play around there and it was it was recognizable you can see yes you can see it but they they just don't they just don't have it right now it was like a the way I've always thought of it is it's like an incredibly amazing architectural building that you can look at it and you can see like, wow, that's really something special, but nobody's taking care of it or put a coat of paint on in 50 years. You yeah. I mean, it was just, exactly. it just got run down, but if they, uh, if they get it back to what it could be and should be, I'm telling you, get ready because it's going to be amazing. I'm excited. Um, so ra- wrapping it up a little bit, uh, there's one more story I kind of want to hear from you because I haven't heard it in full, but I heard you have a really good Great Pine Valley story. Oh, I get this. So, so I'm assuming we're talking about surprising my dad. Yes, that Pine one. Valley. Yeah. So my father, who who is also a, a golfer, um, I've been. He's getting up there. He's just he's 71 now. You know, hi to pops if he listens to this. He's recovering from the coronavirus, um, but he's lived in this area his whole life too. Never played Pine Valley, um, and so. I, I have a friend who, who can facilitate that kind of thing. So we set up around there and I, I told him that we were playing in a, a, a charity tournament next door at Pine Hill, which we've played many times. Uh, and it's which is really nice, but I mean, Pine Valley is Pine Valley. So we're giving him directions to get to the course and you know, I know where we're going, but he doesn't. And so we pull up to the gate and he, he's sort of flabbergasted that he made a wrong turn and somehow ended up at Pine Valley. So we go up to the gate and I'm worried about this part because it's Pine Valley. And, you know, this guy doesn't know what we're about to do. Uh, and my dad goes up and he tells the gate guy that we're looking for a Pine Hill and he's apologetic and then he made a wrong turn or what have you. 
Um, and uh, after I let him twist in the wind for a little while, and I, I got this all on video, uh, I'd lean over and I tell the guy like, hey, you know, this is a surprise for him. He doesn't know that we're playing here today. And the coolest part of the whole story is that the gate guy, who I was really worried was going to be upset and say, you know, we don't do that kind of thing here or whatever. It's Pine Valley. Um, couldn't have been cooler. And he, he starts laughing. He, he says, you should have called ahead. I, you know, I would have played along with you. Yes. If we want to get out of the car and take a picture, uh, it was the coolest thing. And I had been to Pine Valley before, but this was my dad's first time. Uh, and so we do the whole thing. We're driving in and he's, you know, he's actually getting emotional about it as he's talking and he can't believe he's playing there. And like I said, I have the whole thing on video and it's just, you know, I posted on Father's Day and it, it's a it's a nice uh, it's a great memory for us as golf so often provides. You know, I mean, dad golf is always uh, it's always fun. Yeah, I actually first of all, that's an awesome story. Um, second, I, I'm actually in the process of getting my dad into golf um, starting today or starting last oh, week. Oh, nice. So you're doing it, you're doing it the reverse way. Yeah. You're your dad in as opposed to him getting you in. Very yeah. Nice. I need to get him in. He was a cyclist for a while, but he's getting up there. He's 68 or he's about to be 68. Um, and he needs a new hobby. And I'm like, you're going to get into golf. So well, we, we walked Lulu. We walked three holes at Lulu. Um, he walked, he just walked with me. I'm explaining stuff to him, but you know, we're getting there. Hopefully we can good. have that experience down the road, but, uh, we need, um, I need, to get him, I need to get some sticks in his hands. I'm trying to take my dad around to like some of the great courses that he's heard about or seen on TV before he gets to the point where he like, he can't actually play them. You know what I mean? So like we were rushing around and I was taking him to, to a, a bunch of different places just to try and get him out. Like still hit the ball, still walk. I mean, my dad's not that old, but he can still walk a golf course. And I want to get him to these places while we can do it. And then of course, coronavirus hits and like we lose a year. So, I mean, I, we had planned, I was going to take him to the old course in Scotland this past year and a couple other places. And it just all got crapped out. So that's my biggest bummer about Corona. But, well, uh, hopefully yeah. in the next year, you'll be able to get him out there. That's exciting. I can tell you, if we're not traveling at some point in the next year, I'll probably go insane. Yeah. So I'm hoping that we're back to it before too long. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. I have a couple rapid fire questions that I'm just going to kind of shoot at you. They're going to be difficult because you've played so many golf courses. It's kind of <laughs> going to be like, you know, it's going to be whatever. But first okay. thing, favorite round you've brought Gracie out to? Oh, that's a great question. Favorite, probably, I guess the round where I made a, a hole in one at Stonewall okay. and Gracie was the only witness. How many hole in ones do you have in your career? Three. One is at Lulu. Really? <laughs> yeah, sixth hole. Wow. That's a hard hole. It is. That's a really it hard is. hole. <laughs> it was an awful shot, too. It was about a 40 yard hook into that green, rolled up the bank, and then came back into the hole. Oh, my God. That's, I, yep. don't, I don't hit that green. It was I'm ugly. Left, I'm left every time. <laughs> Um, I can't, I can't ask you your favorite golf course. You're can like, do you have one? I do. Oh, okay. I do. So my, my, my favorite golf course is national golf links. Okay. On Long Island, Steve McDonald original Cypress point, depending on the day could be there too. Um, and then sleepy hollows up there just because I'm biased and uh, I'm a homer and I love the place. So is that long for you to get up to sleepy hollow? Uh, so that was the one good part about the pandemic is it killed all the traffic and made it a very easy drive, but it's usually, it's usually two hours. It's not bad. It's worth it for that. So I'll go up there. I'll play all day. Sometimes I'll stay over. You know, it's nice. It's a good weekend course. What's, um, 
the your favorite like last minute round that you've been able to piece together that you've just been able to get something together and be like wow so i'm the king when i travel i am the king of the last minute add-in um and i'm terrible at logistics so like when i travel i'm constantly you know even when i'm out at the place i'm like calling and trying to set up it would probably be los angeles country club which is a place i'd always wanted to see went out to la couldn't set it up it was Super Bowl Sunday, Ooh. and I had the last day of the trip I was supposed to play there. It fell through. I'm in the hotel room, did a post on another L.A. club on Instagram. Somebody reached out to me, a friend of mine said, are you in L.A.? I said, yeah. He said, where are you playing? I gave him the list. He said, you're not playing LACC? I said, I was supposed to play there tomorrow, but it fell through, so I'm just going to go home. He's like, we are on our way to L.A. right now, and we're playing LACC tomorrow, and we only have three guys. If you, want to, if you want to join us, you can. It was like the most serendipitous thing ever. So that's easily the best one of those. And that course I, is amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. I, um, I'm actually I'm looking for a few jobs for the summer in L.A. And I've just been like, best public golf in L.A., best private golf in L.A. Like, got to make some phone calls if I, if I can knock that down. L.A. is amazing. Yeah. Highly uh, the weather, recommend. The weather there, oh, <laughs> just – there are just days, like even in the summer, it's like you walk outside 80 with a breeze and just sunny and just. If you go to L.A., you could play 100 rounds in a row at Rustic Canyon and never get tired. It's public course, Gil Hansen, Jim Wagner. It's phenomenal. I will definitely, definitely keep that in mind. Um, is there a person that you've never played with that you really would love to play 18 holes with? That's a really good question. Hmm. You can start with like the your favorite person that you never expected to play with, you, if that's easier for you. Yeah, so that's interesting too. I think I played a couple holes once with Eddie Merrins, who's the little pro at Bel Air, uh, and he's been there for like fifty six years or something like that. And he showed us around, gave us a tour of some stuff, had lunch with us. I mean, this guy's a legend in golf. Uh, and that was one of the coolest things uh, that I'd ever experienced. Um, as far as playing with somebody goes, uh, you know, I've, I've, I mean, I'd love to play. I've played with some some really good golfers and some some mini tour people. But like, I think I'd love to play golf with somebody like, you know, a high level tour pro just to see how much different the game they play is from the game we play. Um, I haven't been to a lot of golf tournaments. I, I actually don't watch a ton of golf on TV. You know, I watch the majors, but for the most part, it's like same reason why I don't ever go to the range or practice. It's like I want to be playing golf. I don't want to be watching it. I, you know, I just so it would be fun, I think, to play, you know, somebody like Dustin Johnson and see how much, you know, what it's really like when somebody's hitting it 120 yards past you. I think that'd be pretty cool. You're not a range guy, huh? Not a practice I've guy? A, I've been a member at Stonewall now for, I think, five years. and I've never even been to the range. I am. I am ardently not a practice guy wow. that's why i never get any better <laughs> hey man that's one way to do it um not very effective way but it is one way to do it yeah um what's the what's the round that has walking that has made you like the has felt like the longest round that you've played the most i guess rephrase the least walkable round of golf you've played okay um so I walk, once walked Bethpage in July um, where we teed off at, I think, 10 o'clock in the morning. 
and it was a six and a half hour round in like 105 degrees. And that was probably the closest I've ever come to just giving up, you know, like not literally not being able to take it anymore. Um, I've walked some hilly golf courses. I, I walked a course called gray walls way up in the UP in Michigan. And it felt like I was mountain climbing. Like every hole, it was like, you walk up to the tee, tee off, you walk back down to the fairway, you walk up to the green. Uh, but even the hilly courses don't really bother me. It's the slow rounds when I'm walking that really get to me. Slow, hot rounds. Yeah, I mean, that's a good one. And then I guess the, probably the final question I have for you, is there ever, what's a golf course that you've gotten to and you're like, this doesn't look real. Like this is the most surreal moment you've had stepping onto a property. Like this looks like a video game. Cause I play a lot of PGA tour video game. I get a lot of these courses that you're talking about. I'm playing on, on my, on the Xbox, but like somewhere you pull up and you just, you're just in awe. Nothing can prepare someone for the actual experience of walking to the 15th tee at Cypress point. It is, you know, you, you see pictures of it, you know, sometimes you can even catch it on TV. If you watch some of the older Crosby events out there. Um, but it is, you walk along this little path and come around the bend Pacific ocean is on your right. And then you see the golf holes and it's like, you can't believe not only that, that this land exists and looks like it does, but that somehow somebody built a golf course here. It's just, if you could magically create the most beautiful three, three holes you could ever dream up, you couldn't compare that even with these holes at Cypress Point. I, I just, there's no superlative that can do it justice. It is amazing. And that's easily the best. There's some other places too, like Nanea in Hawaii looks like a fantasy land. I mean, it looks like a place where you film Lord of the Rings or something like that. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Um, but Cypress Point is just on a level of its own. And then the last one for you, what is the top, like what is your current number one haven't played, need to play right now at the top? I mean, Augusta National is the obvious answer to that. Um, I've been there. I photographed it, but I've never played it. Um, and I feel like I'll get there someday. There are a lot of courses, though, that I really want to play like tomorrow. Royal County Down is one. The old course is another one. They're mostly internationals. Um, but like I'm dying to go see St. Andrews. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm watching the news and just waiting for the day the quarantine period ends. And I'm going to be on a flight like the day you can go to Scotland without quarantine. I'm on a plane. That's how bad I want to play there. Well, I'm excited for that to happen. Um, John, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for working with me. Um, and I'm excited. This was awesome. I know this isn't a golf podcast by brand, but I think you might you might have lit, you know, lit something in some people to maybe uh, I hope take so. more of an interest in the game. I hope so. I appreciate you having me. And uh, once we all survive this winter, let's go tee it up. Come on out to Stonewall. For sure. Anytime. And, uh, you know, obviously follow John links, gems at links, gems everywhere. Does it, does it ever get old? Like people, when they first meet you, like, Oh, you're links gems. Cause nobody really knows. It's, it doesn't get old and it's always flattering, but it's very much something that I'm not used to. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's always a little bit strange in a good way, but strange. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, John, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, when it gets warmer out, let's go play. Let's do it. I want to thank John again for coming on and spending the past hour with me. If you haven't already and you don't, please go follow him at Lynx Gems, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook if you're into that kind of thing. He is an extraordinary photographer and really does a great job showing us regular people what incredible golf courses are out there for us to play. And if nothing else, he showed how you can turn a hobby into something way bigger than you could have ever imagined. Thanks for listening this far. Follow us on socials at Staying Sharp Pod. We'll be back soon. Noah will be back. And we can't wait to have you back for episode eight. Take care.